Hello and welcome back to Rupture Radio. Um, it's Michael Coleman here uh, and I am joined today by Des Henley. Uh, say hello, Des. How are you, Michael? Thanks for being with us. Um, we're going to discuss uh, the De- Des's um, article in the most recent edition of uh, Rupture magazine, where he uh, writes about the, the metabolic rift and Ireland. Um, if you haven't yet uh, read this issue of uh, Rupture magazine, then what are you doing? Um, it's uh, go to rupture.ie. It's a it's a tenner a pop for the latest issue, or you can uh, you can subscribe as well, uh, which is a tenner every three months. Um, Des's article is up on the website uh, at the moment already, I believe. But it's just a selection of the the, the many great uh, articles that were in this edition of Rupture Magazine, and um, the general theme being um, based on uh, International Working Women's Day. And um, so do do check that out if you haven't already. Um, so yeah, as I said, we we're, we're 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 here to talk about Des's article, which is about the the the, the idea of the metabolic rift in Ireland. So um, let's jump straight into that. Um, Des, so just as a kind of a refresher before we get into the specifics of the metabolic rift in the Irish context, I thought it would be a good idea for you to give us maybe a broad overview. Um, so to begin then, uh, what is the metabolic relation between humanity and nature, uh, and what has caused a rift uh, in this relation? Yeah, um, well, thanks, Michael. Well, <clears throat> I think probably go back a bit. I mean, the concept of meta- metabolism in nature, that kind of first emerged in the 19th century uh, as a way of uh, trying to define the newly understood um, biological and biochemical processes uh, that, that that science was exploring and getting to understand much better at that point. And it was really to define um, the process in which an organism processes uh, materials and uh, fr- from its external environment um, and processes matter from its external environment and converts that into energy to build the building blocks for its own, to sustain its own existence and promote its own growth. So in very simple terms, when we eat food, what happens in our gut and in our stomach is the biochemical process, which changes that matter um, from the, the form it's in at consumption into energy um, to sustain us and grow us and, in, and obviously into waste as well. So that's um, metabolism and me- metabolism, metabolism in, in, in nature. Um, and just, you know, to talk a little more about that, Marx and Engels were particularly interested in it because it, it, it you know, provided, you know, an important piece of science to their materialist philosophy, materialist in the, you know, in the very real sense of um, natural material and matter. And its conversion, um, and it was Engels uh, said at the time, and uh, the quote in the in the uh, having the article that the o- organic exchange of matter is the most general and characteristic phenomenon of life. It's you know that there is nothing uh, of any organic nature that doesn't engage in that process. Um, and Marx, you know, also used the the, the concepts concept of metabolism. To, to describe the relationship between humans and their natural environment and how we and how human labor is the process by which we use and consume our environment to generate our own um, existence uh, um, as a metabolic pr- process. And, and he wrote at the time that actual labor is the appropriation of nature for the satisfaction of human needs. Um, the activity through which the metabolism between man and nature is is mediated. 
Um, so throughout, you know, our existence, um, the, the metabolic met, metabolic relationship between humans and nature has been determined has has changed, and it's determined really by the, the different forms of social organization that we that we live with. So in in the hunter gatherer social organization that would have been the vast majority of human existence that was a particular metabolic metabolic relationship with nature which was just gathering you know the fruit and the nuts and and, and uh, on whatever was available and and hunting animals um you know when we progressed to agriculture it was a different form of metabolic relationship with between humans and, and nature um and then of course through to our current social organization capitalism and that's a system that you know, capitalism only exists for one purpose and that's to achieve a permanent process of exponential growth of capital that's that everything else is uh, to support that or is uh, secondary and subordinate to that um it has to grow the stock of capital um just in the way that our bodies have to draw breath you know that that growth is not optional it's not discretionary you know any interruption to 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 that means instant crisis it must have capital growth so but to generate that that growth in capital to go from where it, you know its current stock of capital to a higher stock of capital it, there's only two inputs to that to achieve that growth and that's human labor um and natural resources and capitalism you know and it's it's kind of it's singular and it's relentless focus on on generating growth consumes and and degrades both people and nature at an ever increasing rate. Um, and, and, and Marx wrote at the time that like while industry lays waste and ruins people, agriculture does the same to the natural power of the of the soil. So I think. You know, we're if we've two hundred fifty, three hundred years of capitalism uh, behind us at this stage, uh, and it's used the natural environment at an accelerating pace all the way through, um, and, and at a pace f- for a long time now that that's much uh, faster than than nature can replace and repair what's been consumed and damaged, um, and. You know, we 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 have scientists, you know, earth scientists now who have, you know, mapped what's happening to the degradation of the natural environment and identified what they call kind of nine planetary boundaries relating to the earth systems that are absolutely fundamental to the conditions of our existence and the, the natural world or um, an organic world in general. Um and you know, of those nine, they, they identify four boundaries that are uh, either high risk or in the danger zone. So, along with obviously climate change, but you've also got what they call the biosphere integrity, interference with the nitrogen and the phosphorus cycles, and and land use change. So, and just to pick out climate change, I'm, I'm going on a bit here, Michael. <laughs> All the answers won't be this long, I promise. Bear with me, but. Um, in relation to climate change, for example, like carbon dioxide levels in our atmosphere now are like are, are way, way beyond anything that has existed um, in maybe 200,000 years since modern humans have evolved. So, you know, we're in the process of transitioning and forcing a new climate 
that humans have never experienced. You know, we've never, we didn't evolve in, in the climate that's coming. Um, and when I say we're transitioning, that's a bit of a euphemism, euphemism in the way that, you know, you're, when you fall off a cliff, you're transitioning to the ground. That's the sort of thing that we're going through right now. So, um, so that, that we're in a perilous situation. So, and just on that, one thing I've, I think I wrote in a previous article in, in uh, Rupture, something I find staggering is that, you know, the first substantive United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change Report, that, that was published in 1990. So that's what, just over 30 years. Um, so capitalism has known officially uh, and on record, uh, if not before then, by then, from its own institutions, how serious the existential threat is to our climate. Um, so, um, and and despite that, you know, 30 years ago, what astonishes me is that more carbon dioxide emissions have been released into the atmosphere since that report than uh, has e- was ever produced by uh, humanity in all of its all of human history up to 1990, and that's absolutely staggering. And I think it demonstrates, you know, the the, the complete inability of capitalism to to respond to the cli- climate crisis. Um, you know, that the, the, it can't be put any clearer. So anyway, so just just to bring it back to metabolic rift. What it means basically is when humans are consuming and degrading natural resources and the environment faster than nature can repair and place it, um, then we have what's referred to as the the, the metabolic rift opening up. And after 300 years of exponential permanent growth of capital, that's rift has has opened up to an enormous extent now. So, yeah, so I think, you know, um, that's how I would respond to that. Grand, yeah. So that's just a broad overview. Um, And obviously this article looks at the metabolic rift specifically in the context of Ireland. Um, And Marx and Engels were were very fascinated by Ireland, as you point out in in the article. Um, Engels famously said, give me 200,000 Irishmen and I could overthrow the British government. Um, Another kind of interesting tidbit, I think, is Marx's daughter, Eleanor, um, was obsessed with the cause of Irish republicanism and signed her letters as FS, which stood for Fenian Sister. Um, so your article outlines that there was good reason for this fascination with Ireland, though. So why exactly was it that they paid so much attention to such a, a seemingly insignificant island? Yeah, um, and they did. You know, uh, Both Marx and Engels had a very deep um, and sustained interest in, in Ireland's history. Um, yeah, they're they're interested in the the colonial economy, and the anti-colonial struggles in response to that. Um, and Marx was studying Ireland quite closely from the eighteen forties onwards, um, and it's and you can see it informed capital and the features in in capital quite significantly. Um, and Engels then had a you know a, had a lot of interest in Ireland. He wrote a kind of a, a history uh, of Ireland. Um, he had, had two extended study visits here in 1856 and 1869, and his partner was uh, Lizzie Burns. She was a working class uh, Irish woman, so you know there was a lot of connection um, to Ireland at that level as well. <clears throat> and Marx, he was particularly interested in, in the central role that the kind of landlord-tenant social relationship played in the extreme forms of. Um, economic, social, and, and national oppressions that were imposed in Ireland under 
British colonial rule. Um, and, and he kind of said, like, the, the, the domination over, over Ireland at present amounts effectively to collecting rent for the English aristocracy. That's how he defines the relationship. Um, so Ireland just provided an opportunity that was um, to, to study these colonial uh, and absentee landlord type relationships up close um, and to, to get a, a better sense of how colonialism, colonialism worked. Um, you know, uh, the way the, the economy of the, uh, of the colony was shaped to meet specific needs of the colonial power, how military power and ideological power were used to, to subjugate people, um, how the resi- resistance to that expressed itself. Um, they looked at the relationship between the oppressed in the colony and the oppressed in the colonial power. Um, and in the case of Ireland, it, you know, Marx and Engels could could study all of these elements up close, um, um, both the history of it and in real time events as well, because, you know, so much was happening in Irish history uh, during the, the, the time that Marx and Engels were alive and, and were, uh, were writing. Um, and, and I think in their studies of Ireland, they worked out many of the ways that um, Marxists should view colonialism and the resistance to it. And they applied a lot of what they learned to what was happening elsewhere in the, in the British and, and other empires. So I think that's why they had that you know, sustained interest in Ireland. And so, yeah, um, just to, to maybe elaborate a bit more on that then, Des, like what, what role did Ireland play in the establishment and, and development of, of capitalism in Britain then? Um, well, it played a a key role um, because you know Ireland was integrated into Britain's imperial system primarily as a source of cheap food for uh, England's industrial working class that was growing rapidly at the time. So um, sourcing cheap food for those workers was an important uh, mechanism for the for the owners of capital to try and keep some downward pressure on, on the wages of, of workers in Britain's fast-growing industrial centres. So, like, you know, um, if demand for food is increasing, obviously there's going to be upward pressure on, on prices. So being able to source greater volumes of food cheaply helped to keep the prices down, which, you know, the owners of capital would, of course, use then to keep um, downward pressure on, on wages. So it was very important in that you know, this relatively early stage of, of British capitalism. Um, and, you know, emerging Irish industries were were deliberately crushed to, to consolidate Ireland in that uh, role of a, a, a cheap food pr- provider, um, as well as to eradicate any competitors to British industry itself. And, um, you know, so there was this policy of forced de- deindustrialization. Um, and it, you know, there was because Ireland had quite significant textile industries up to that point. And so, so just quoting some of the, the data I have in the article, like in eighteen hundred in, in Ireland, there were ninety one wool manufacturers in Dublin, employing over four thousand workers. Um, Forty years later, by eighteen forty, that this had been reduced to just twelve manufacturers employing six hundred eighty two people, um, and many of those early industrial capitalists in Ireland, if you like, then moved to Germany 
Belgium, France, Holland and uh, Spain, I think, as well, to, to set up their operations elsewhere beyond uh, British control. And uh, there was actually a, a big smuggling industry took place in that era as well, because the quality of Irish wool was exceptionally high. And that many of those industrialists uh, kept a supply of Irish wool coming into their new bases on on the continent. So, so yeah, I think I would say what, what British policy in Ireland was part of what Marx would have called primitive accumulation of capital. You know, um, primitive in this context meaning accumulation through basically the direct taking of of wealth through brute force and, and violence to to create capital uh, back at the uh, at the centre of the imperial power. So yeah, it, it played a very important role in. The establishment of capitalism in Britain. So, following on that, from that again, you you place a lot of import on a, a system of landletting known as rack renting. What what exactly was rack renting, and what was its overall effect? Um, well, rack renting really—it's uh, a name and maybe a colloquialism put on the hyper exploitative system uh, that was in operation in, in Ireland in the first half of the nineteenth century. Um, you know, and, and those decades up to the famine, um, and you could—it was kind of probably based on social relations that were close to feudal in nature. But then the exchange tran- transactions took place largely in in monetary forms. So you know, it was that combination of just hyper exploitation w- with a, a feudal um, dimension to it, um, and it probably really reached its most severe phase with the establishment of direct rule in, in from 1801 that kind of formalized Ireland as a colony um, and the exploitation of, of people and land just intensified really rapidly then as as the absentee landlords s- squeezed tenants for escalating r- rents um, uh, and the practice was the absentee landlords would employ middlemen to let the land to tenant farmers, and they often in turn would sublet to very small plots to what were called cottier peasant farmers. Um, and it produced this very intensely extractive system, um, driving agricultural practices that had to produce subsistence for you know, quite large families often on very small plots of land. Um, and something like, you know, the un- unrelenting pressure on, on tenants meant they couldn't have fallow years on their land, you know, because they literally had to have the, the produce for sustenance day to day, week to week. Um, so, the, you know, the, the, the practice of fallow years on land is important uh, to, to allow soil to to. Re- nutrients to be replenished um, but they simply couldn't afford to do that and also that it was common practice at the time that any improvements to the land carried out by a tenant just automatically generated higher rents um, from landlords so there was therefore very little incentive to do that Um, so very little investment in in the soil and people lived precarious lives of subsistence you know always on the the edge of hunger if not outright hunger Um, and I, and I think in short form, that's how I describe what rack, rack renting was and what its key impacts were. Great, yeah. Um, just moving back to to the idea of the metabolic rift again, as you kind of noted earlier, one of the important um, 
components of that is the idea that um you know the re- nutrients stop being returned to the soil and so the relation is is broken be- between humanity and nature is broken to some extent um you observe that the growth of grain exports in Ireland added to pressure on the soil here as those nutrients were permanently transported to Britain um for Marx and Engels what what, what exactly was the significance of soil nutrients not being returned to the Irish soil in this way and what did it have to do with the Great Famine, if if anything? Yeah. Um, well, te- uh, you know, tenant farmers and the, the, the cottier peasants, they mostly grew potatoes uh, for, for subsistence. Um, and the intensity of that, I talked about, was very extractive of the soil. Um, but, you know, the potatoes were generally consumed locally. So, you know, nutrients in, in the waste <laughs> could, could be re- recycled back into the soil. Um, and... The, the 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 tenants did engage in practices like digging up of subsoils and the use of available fertilizers to replace uh, nutrients back into the topsoil to try and sustain um, the quality of the soil and sustain uh, agriculture output. So, but the intent, intensity of it was depletive of the soil, um, albeit there were some restorative agricultural practices uh, and fertilizations that could could mitigate that to some degree. Um, but it, the, 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 there were new corn laws passed in 1815 um, that basically it, it banned imports of corn to, to Britain, but that ban didn't apply to, to Ireland. Um, so it created uh, a lot of unmet demand in Britain for 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 grain, uh, and a lot of that was met from Ireland then with through increased output of grain from Ireland as an export cash crop, um, and the growth of grain uh, added to the pressure on the soil as because now the nutrients of the, of the soil captured within the grain were permanently transported out of Ireland and and, and to Britain, uh, and the grain was consumed outside the country so the waste could not be you know captured and, and recycled back in to replenish the Irish soil and uh, Marx have observed of this he, he wrote that um, England has indirectly exported the soil of Ireland without even allowing its cultivators the means of replacing the constituents of the exhausted soil and so that's why um, the growth in uh, production of corn for and grain for export added to this process <clears throat> of removing nutrients from the soil and that you know added another dimension to the metabolic rift of, of Ireland and uh, actually just uh, one of the the reason I, uh, I probably wrote this article is I read a book uh, The Robbery of Nature uh, by John Bellamy Foster who people might know he, he wrote uh, Marx's Ecology um, so he wrote The Robbery of Nature, a more, much more recent book, I think 2020 it was published, along with Brett Clark. Um, and they, they just, something I had in the article that they wrote, so just worth reading. During this period, the intensification and expansion of the rack renting and Conacre systems created a fragile agroecology with an underlying metabolic rift in the nutrient cycle, which was extremely vulnerable to the famine that followed. So I think that kind of captured what, what was happening. So then when we came along 1845 and there was the outbreak of potato blight, blight that spread rapidly and it destroyed about half of the crop that year, most of it in 1846 and pretty much all of it in 1847. So 
you know, yet the failure of a single crop relied on for uh, subsistence that pitched the Irish population into a catastrophe. Um, it, 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 and it's not to say just that that soil depletion um, caused the famine. That wouldn't be correct. Uh, the, the primary cause was elsewhere uh, in the social relations imposed on the Irish economy, and maybe we can come back to that. But I think that you know uh, would be my response to how the uh, grain production contributed contributed an extra dimension to uh, the metabolic rift. Cool. And um, just to know for any listeners who, who, who want to find out more, um, Bellamy Foster is probably the, the thinker most responsible for bringing the idea of the metabolic relation and the metabolic rift into contemporary ecological thought and into con- contemporary Marxism, even. Um, and his book, uh, Marx's Ecology, is sort of like a very, very good kind of starting point um, to, to learn about, about some of these ideas. Um, Moving on, though, um, with the famine um, and, and its aftermath, um, you kind of note that a fundamental change occurred in Irish farming at this point. There was a, a transformation from a patchwork of small farm holdings uh, and communal village land um, to, to less labour intensive, um, large scale pasture farming. Um, what role did, did the weakened soil play in, in driving the landlords and incentives to, to, to make these kinds of changes? And what were the effects of these changes on the people of Ireland? Yeah, yeah there, there was a big shift because um, so that those decades of the intense rack renting in, in the first half of the 19th century drove those agricultural practices that, that did have you know, damaging effects on the quality of the, of the soil. Um, and again, another quote there that, that I used, I think, in the article from uh, Bellamy Foster and Clark was that, you know, having praised the fruitfulness of the Irish soil uh, in the first half of the 19th century and talked about uh, how, how wonderful it was for the cultivation of wheat um, without or barely even needing any tending. Um, it became known, you know, English agronomists and politicians suddenly discovered that Irish land was good for little other than the production of, of forage. Um, so you had that kind of degradation of the uh, of the soil um but you also had you know the the depopulation then of the the famine itself this very rapid depopulation removed many of the the tenant farmers who had uh, tended the land and had carried out whatever replenishment was taking place Uh, it was these farmers who were doing it um you know doing their best in what was an impossible economic position um and then, a lot, uh, coincident with this, there was at the time there was um, an outbreak of cattle disease in in the British herd in in Britain, and that generated a large increase in demand for meat, um, and you know that 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 uh, added to pressure to move to a different form of agriculture in Ireland. So you had a depletion of the soil, soil the reduced availability of cheap workers of the land and an increased demand for meat prompted a switch by landlords to the less labour-intensive large-scale pasture farming that became started to come in then from from the mid-1840s onwards in the immediate aftermath of of the famine. Um, And accelerating this switch, um, 
the, the landlords began what I think Marx very clinically refers to as a quiet business-like extinction. That's, that's what it was. Uh, to clear the land beyond what death and emigration had already done. Um, and Connolly, right, at this time talked about, you know, where there'd been hundreds of families that had reaped a sustenance from their small farms or by hiring out their labour to the, to the owners of a large farm, a dozen shepherds now occupied in their places. Um, and I had some data in the, the article as well. I won't, it's a bit numbery, so I won't call them all out. But just by way of example, in 1841, there was 135,000 farm holdings of less than one acre. But 10 years later, that was down to just under 38,000. So a, a drop of maybe 70% in the number of such holdings. And at the other end, there was a huge increase in the number of farms of 30 acres or more. So there was this very rapid shift to a new form of, of agriculture that was very rapid and very, very brutal uh, in terms of the depopulation that it, that it drove. Um and the death toll and emigra emigration at the time resulted the population uh, reduced by a third in the 10 years between 1845 and 1855 um, and halved by 1911, according to some of the census figures of the time. So it was incredibly ra rapid um, and an estimated one million people died or left in 1855, 1856 alone. Uh, and actually the, the livestock numbers increased by an almost equivalent number at the time so i think that gives a sense of of what was going on there yeah i mean like it's it's a theme that's um that that that's very prominent throughout irish history and i feel you know a lot of listeners would would feel it as as, as well is the kind of enduring um villainy of the figure of the landlord um, and sticking with that for the moment um marx and engels as you say placed a strong emphasis on the the social relations of absentee landlordism specifically um in in these processes um what was particular about this social arrangement though um that justified this this emphasis yeah um Marx and Engels did, you know, emphasize that that the role of of played by social relations you know because you know you come back to the debates on well, what caused the famine, and there were lots of things happening. There were lots of contributory factors, um, you know, that within the, all those complex developments and events that led to that catastrophe inflicted on Ireland in, uh, in the mid nineteenth century. Um, and I think in a in a less exploitative social setting, like potato blight would almost certainly not have had the, the uniquely devastating consequences that it did in Ireland, you know. Um, but it was the hyper-exploitative absentee landlordism and the rack-renting um, that created this vast population of people that were living a pre precarious subsistence existence, um, who were almost entirely dependent for their existence on, on one crop, the potato, and within that, actually one variety of potato, the, the, the lumper potato. Um, and, you know, as mentioned, that, you know, any attempts to improve the quality of the land just drove an increase in rent, you know, so that, that was part of it as well. But it was the landlordism that was the, the proximate cause to a series of social and economic practices that generated the circumstances that when blight affected the potato crop, what would have been a problem, maybe a big problem, but a manageable one you would you would expect in a properly 
functioning uh, a more egalitarian society. But in this case, it it triggered a total societal collapse. Um, and, you know, alongside that, of course, was that the fact that Food was being produced in Ireland. You know, the the the, the potato crop failed, um, uh, but the, by this stage there was substantial quantities of grain was being produced. But the interests of landlords and the ide- ideology of markets, which we know all about, dictated that this would be exported, despite the existence of uh, of mass starvation. So you know that combination of uh, the social relations of landlordism and the, the growing. Um, impact of our market ideology uh, that produce <coughs> um, produce this precarious subsistence farming system based on a you know on a very intense monoculture agriculture that produced f- food vulnerability and insecurity and 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 that's in the social relations of absentee landlordism uh, that's where I think we find the primary cause of the uh, of the famine. Cool, um, and just to zoom back out again for for another kind of big picture question um so ireland is often said to have been the the laboratory of colonialism or, or british colonialism specifically insofar as many of the technologies that were later deployed in the americas in africa um and elsewhere were first developed and honed in ireland so for example the the kind of the plantation of settler colonists um, and the, the the processes involved with that. Um, so I think there's an interesting parallel that, as you say, Marx and Engels made made many initial insights um, and observations about Ireland that they would then later apply uh, in a broader anti-colonial uh, stance. So my question here is, how do you think they did apply these insights about Ireland to the general analysis um, of colonial oppression? Um, and yeah, you know, the, 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 it was their close studies of. Um, the the interplay of social and national uh, oppressions, uh, social, economic, and national oppressions in Ireland that Marx and Engels were so fascinated by, um, and from that that they developed their general analysis of uh, resistance to colonial uh, oppression that they applied to anti-colonial struggles across the world. So you know, from studying. The economic relationship between Britain and Ireland, the processes of economic extraction, the processes of economic underdevelopment and forced economic regression, um, the development and promotion of supremacist ideology to justify the brutalization of people. Um, and they also learned about the resistance, though, of, of the subjugated. Um, Engels noted um, the sustained resistance in Ireland, you know, repeated revolutionary movements, the Fenian upsurge, um, and a quote I have again in the article that I thought was good from Engels saying that after the most savage suppression, after every attempt to exterminate them, the Irish, following a short respite, stood stronger than ever before. And, you know, I think that's probably an energy that we're looking for today today as well. But um, so they saw the plight and liberation of Ireland as central to challenging and defeating British capitalism and and empire. Um, And they saw English colonial attitudes to Ireland amongst the working class as a major barrier, uh, an issue to the the liberation of the English working class itself. (coughs) And they called for the English working class to support the cause of Ireland as a just and an equitable cause in its own right. 
but also part of the process of, of their own liberation from the British ruling class. Um, and Marx wrote, it's the task of the international everywhere to put the conflicts between England and Ireland in the foreground and everywhere to side openly with Ireland. So, and then they took what they learned and developed in terms of their economic analysis and their political analysis of all that um, uh, and, and, and informed their view of colonialism across the planet, um, in large part based on Ireland and, and, um, and brought that elsewhere to the sort of struggles that you were talking about in other countries. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's that's very interesting. Of course, I think it's worth noting that like Engels in particular was probably, I guess, like uniquely situated to make some of those those observations, given his kind of, I guess, proximity to 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 the working British working class in in in, in Manchester. But also that is a lifelong partner, Mary Burns, was was herself Irish, um. So he was at quite a, an interesting cross section there, um. Yeah, this has been a really interesting chat, but to, to close this discussion, um, I, I want to maybe shift the focus to, to, to more um, contemporary matters. Um, so in terms of contemporary relevance, like a, a fact, like I feel we're all kind of taught at school, but I don't think we're going to grasp how insane it is, is the fact that Ireland still has not outstripped um, its pre-famine population. Um, the population of the island of Ireland now is about 6 million, um, give or take. Um, just before the famine, it was about 8 million. Um, and given the exponential increases in populations there has been elsewhere in the world, um, that, that is a really kind of massive thing to, to, to square when we kind of think about like, you know, how, how, how different the country might be without that. Obviously, there's, you know, there's only so much point um, in, in, in engaging in that kind of speculative thinking, but it is still, you know, massive. Um, but, um, you know, and the effects that could have in terms of there being like a more evenly dispersed population, less centralization in Dublin, etc. But other than these kind of obvious demographic effects, um, how, um, sorry, yeah, other than these obvious demographic effects, in, in what other ways, um, do the scars still exist from this uh, great robbery of nature? I think that the population data is is worth just just looking at because we are still well below the pre-famine peak. Um, uh, whereas in contrast, the world population is six times higher today than it was the, the, elsewhere. So I think that gives you uh, a sense of just uh, what the immediate impact of the famine was, but its lasting impact that we are still, you know, so we... So if our population had increased by six times, we'd be at about 50 million now. Um, so that gives you a sense of, of the impact of it and the lasting impact. Um, so, um, you know, but our natural environment and our agriculture, you know, is very much shaped by the 19th century. Um, it has left us with an Ireland that's dominated by beef and dairy farming and agribusiness. Um which you know has uh, had devastating and continuing adverse effects on our ecology, um, and there was a report uh, published a couple of months ago now by the Environmental Protection Agency. Um, for people, anyone looking for it, I think it's called Ireland's Environment and Integrated Assessment 2020. So I think the EPA do these on I can't remember is it four year or seven year cycles, but a very comprehensive report. I think it's a couple of hundred pages. Um, and it's you know, the EPA EPA operates within a particular relatively conservative ideological framework that kind of tends to blunt 
the urgency of the situation and the, the, you know the language that they use is a bit understated but it's still actually a very useful assessment um, of the large and deepening rift that we have in Ireland with our natural environment so just to, to give a flavor of some of that the report talks about um, 60% of agricultural land in Ireland is used for pasture and highlights that we need to you know step back from intensive agricultural and land use practices because you know they're affecting um, uh, and creating threats to the environment and, and to human health um, and uh, one of the things I, I saw in our report, you know, the, the, the very poor quality of water, uh, they, they noted, just a quote I've got here, the d- dramatic reduction in the number of Ireland's most pristine rivers, which have fallen from over 500 sites to only 20 sites in just 30 years. You know, that, that's an astonishing piece of data. Uh, and over half of the suspected cases of pollution in rivers were caused by agricultural runoff. Um, and the report notes that close to 90% of Ireland's energy is still generated from, from fossil fuels even today, uh, with almost a third of Ireland's greenhouse gas emissions coming from agriculture. And this is a time when our planet like, is, is probably within a decade. You know, By the end of this decade, we'll have reached the dangerous warming of 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial temperatures you know so it's it's we're in a bad place on this and the the report concludes um for for climate nature and water quality the objective to deliver on people's expectations to live in a healthy and protected environment will not be met in the short to to medium term unless there is an acceleration and full implementation of the measures needed to address those issues so i think that's an example of the sort of understated words and terminology that the EPA uh, uses, uh, but if you you know open it up a bit, you can see that it's articulating the very deep metabolic rift that we've we've got here in, in Ireland, uh, and that it's still moving in the wrong uh, direction, having been opened up you know substantially during the colonial era of the 19th century, and it's just continuing and widening under a system that you know, uh, as I said earlier, exists solely to deliver permanent exponential growth in capital. Um, so, you know, that's, um, I think that's where we've we've got to, that's where we are today, and it's not in a good place. And it's a huge challenge for eco-socialists, you know, um, and I conclude the article really, but saying that there's huge challenges for to come up with uh, policy proposals around a transition to agroecological forms that give us sustainability and food sovereignty um you know so you've got to find ways of bringing new farmers uh, of making land available to new farmers uh, providing income and supports and training development of organic production systems regenerative farming policies and restoring the soil um to to, to full health and sustainability and the people like Tal of Bio in Ireland, an organization of small and sustainable farmers that there was an interview in one of, I think maybe in our issue two with Fergal Anderson of Tal of Bio, which I'd, you know, refer listeners to if they can have a look at that. Uh, I thought it was very interesting. He talks in some detail about how they would suggest responding. And there's international groups as well. La Via uh, Campesina uh, internationally would be a, something similar to Tal of Bio. And I think 
eco-socialists need to work very closely with organizations like like that and come up with the proposals and re- proposals and responses that we're going to need to the extreme ecological crisis and metabolic rift that we're facing yeah yeah the um the marx quote at the start of the the 18th brumaire of of louis napoleon kind of comes to mind that men make their history but not with their own history but not necessarily in circumstances of their own choosing the 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 tradition of all dead generations weighs like a nightmare in the brains of the living um he's talking of course in more of a kind of cultural or ide- ideological sense there but i do think there is a real sense in terms of what 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 happened in the 19th century um the way it kind of frames what we have to do now as as eco-socialists and really like limits the the actions we we can take in many ways although that's not to say um there there aren't actions we can take but um it it, it is it is a very important thing to look back on um, and I think that's probably as good a place as as any to 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 end it. And um, just uh, one w- w- one more time, if you um, if you're interested in this, you can find Des's article on Rupture.ie. Um, and if you go on to that website, um, why not go one step f- further and purchase the latest issue of Rupture magazine? And um, or subscribe, indeed. Um, but yeah, thanks very much, uh, Des, for joining us for that chat. Uh, it was a pleasure and very very interesting. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. Great. See it. <laughs> Bye. Bye. You wake up and your head's fucked. You stick your trousers on and your last bit of makeup. You're